welcome to Little Yo Pod, the all things Yosemite podcast. I'm your host, Laura Jackson, a longtime resident and interpretive guide in Yosemite National Park. And today's episode is all about the history behind and effects of wildfire in Yosemite and California. Now, if you know me at all, you know that this is a topic that I am very passionate about and one I have been studying since I first became an interpretive guide back in 2018. 2018 was the year uh, Yosemite Valley was evacuated and closed for over a month from July to August due to the smoke and danger presented by the Ferguson fire. Uh, That was the fire that burned almost 97,000 acres in and around the western part of Yosemite. I was quite literally in the middle of giving a presentation on fire when I got the news the Ferguson fire had ignited, and about a week later, um, all of us residents were told we had to leave Yosemite Valley for an undetermined length of time. That was three years ago, and today, as I write this episode, I look out my window and see my little community blanketed in the soft, familiar, smoky haze that has become expected with the dry months in California. This year, the smoke is coming from the KNP Complex fire, the fires that are burning in Sequoia and Kings Canyon National Parks uh, just south of Yosemite. And those fires had a, a lot of attention because they were threatening the big trees in Sequoia, including the General Sherman, this largest single stem tree on the planet by volume and estimated to be between 2,300 and 2,700 years old. Uh, You may have seen the pictures of the fire crews wrapping the big tree in fire-resistant blankets to protect it from the impending fire, and as of now, the General Sherman is safe, but at least one monarch sequoia did succumb to the flames in the National Park after millennia of surviving natural fires. Even though sequoias and many plant species are adapted to fire in the California climate, these species are for the first time under direct threat of the wild and unmanageable fires of today. So what changed with fire from 3,000 years ago to today? Well, we know a lot of things have changed. But why are these fires so severe and why do we have so many of them now compared to even 20 years ago? Living in California today nearly guarantees that you will be experiencing several weeks, if not months, of bad to hazardous air quality, and a lot of homes and structures and ecosystems are now under direct threat every fire season. Well, the contemporary story of fire in California begins, like so many stories in the western United States, with the discovery of gold at Sutter's Mill in 1848. Prior to 1848, most people living in the area that would become California were Native Americans, and many of the tribes that had been living in the region for thousands of years had learned how to live alongside fire and even use it to their advantage. In Yosemite Valley, the Awanichi burned the meadows every year to clear old debris and facilitate the arrival of grasses the following spring. That annual burning also cleared the land of young conifers that could eventually overshadow the oak trees, uh, the trees that the Awanichi relied on as their staple food source with that black oak acorn. I believe the Awanichi also realized that keeping annual fire traditions reduced the fuel load so they did not risk an uncontrollable fire situation where they had settled. So they were very, very much in tune with the cycles and rhythms of the natural world and had been living alongside those cycles for thousands of years. When Chief Tanaya's people were removed from their home in the place we know today as Yosemite Valley, what they called Awani, The annual burning tradition of the meadows ended as well, allowing the vegetation to overgrow in some areas, and without natural fires, the forests of Yosemite Valley became 
uh, crowded and overvegetated. So that's what we see now in the valley, but that small area is kind of a mirror for what happened all over the western United States after a massive wave of immigrants settled in California. From 1848 to 1852, the population of non-native people in the area exploded as hundreds of thousands of people took over and developed on um, what was previously uh, land lived on uh, by the Native Americans. Because so much area was being developed so quickly, fire was for the first time eliminated from many places, fires that would have occurred naturally or had been facilitated by the Native American people. When Yosemite was established as a state park in 1864, the group of men overseeing the newly established park talked about the Native American burning tradition and wondered if they ought to continue implementing it as a means of controlling the potential for wildfire, but that idea was opposed, almost unanimously, even by John Muir, believing it to be harmful to the environment. So the trees grew and grew with no natural force coming to clean them out periodically, as had been the case for hundreds of thousands, if not millions of years. Fires, some fires did still burn in remote areas uh, for a few decades, but with more people spreading further into wildlands, even the fires in the most remote sections of California, and this is post-1848 we're talking about, uh, even the fires in the most remote sections of California were being watched and possibly snuffed out before uh, they could burn any significant amount of land. And then in 1910, something major happened. A massive wildfire spread from northern Idaho to Washington and Montana, and three million acres burned in just a matter of days. The Big Burn, as it has been named, occurred in August during a very dry year. Um, that, again, was in 1910. The fire was ignited by lightning storm, or lightning strikes and sparks from locomotives traveling over a very dry landscape, and thousands of smaller fires were whipped into this blazing inferno on August 20th due to Hurricane Force winds. And the big burn shot across the landscape with more speed and ferocity than anyone had ever seen before. Some towns that were in the line of fire were frantically evacuated and destroyed, and altogether 87 people were killed, most of them firefighters with limited resources who were trapped and surrounded by the fast-moving flames. It was one of the most violent and tragic events in America's history, and it was the event that would lead to one of the most aggressive policies to ever be ever be implemented for forest management, and that was the absolute suppression of fire, even in all wildlands for the western United States. Shortly after the Big Burn, the Forest Service under Gifford Pencho enacted something called the 10 a.m. policy, stating that any fire spotted in the forest or wilderness had to be completely extinguished by 10 a.m. the following day. This policy went unchanged for 50 years before being revisited in the eco-conscious awakening of the 1960s, but by then, fire had been ex uh, suppressed and extinguished in most parts of California from the 1850s on, and a lot of growth came in during that time. So over a century of fire suppression led to overgrown uh, forests in the American West and very limited biodiversity, so the ecosystems were not very diverse. Forests were growing in at the same rate. Many trees of the same species and same age were taking over the canopy. Ladder fuels, such as dead branches on the bottom of trees that would be um, burned away had natural fire persisted, uh, and dead material collected on the forest floor year after year, just adding to the fuel load. And then, and then California entered its worst. It gets even worse. 
just just piling on the problems here. Uh, and then California entered its worst drought in recorded history from 2011 to, uh, 2011 to 2016. And during that time, millions of trees that were stressed from overpopulation and lack of moisture were dying. They were also being attacked by bark beetle, and that epidemic killed millions of conifers in the Sierra Nevada and the summers were getting hotter and drier by the year. So hot, dry summers followed by warm, dry winters for four years in a row created a fire situation that became impossible to manage. There was just too much fuel and it was too hot and too dry. Prior to 2010, the term megafire was probably not known by many people besides fire ecologists because we just hadn't seen uh, that many fires that were that vast. And now we can almost count on seeing at least a few of those massive fires every year in California, particularly in hotter and drier conditions than normal and during drought years, um, just like the one we had in 2021. Uh, so megafires are loosely defined by the amount of land they burn. And here in the Western states, that's typically over 100,000 acres. And that number doesn't even seem that large anymore, but prior to like the early 2000s, a lot of the fires we'd seen, rarely would they get that large. They were, a big fire was considered like 20,000 acres. But it's difficult for me to even think of a year that we didn't have a mega fire right on our doorstep in Yosemite or even hundreds of miles away from us that still covered the Sierra Nevada in thick smoke. It's become the norm for us here in California and in the mountains and something that a lot of people are surprised and disappointed by when visiting Yosemite during fire season. People even end their vacation early because it's so miserable. But the truth is, there really is no end in sight for these fires. We're going to be dealing with them at this level at least for the next several decades. So what are we doing um, for future management? What is happening with fire management now? Well, we know a lot more than they did in 1910. And as a rule, many of the fires that ignite naturally in wilderness are now allowed to burn on their own, at least in national parks, this is the case. Uh, maybe not so much in national forests, but in national parks, those fires are allowed to burn on their own while being monitored uh, by park service fire crews. Uh, most fires that occur in the Sierra Nevada are lit by lightning strikes, although some are human-caused. If, if a fire does not threaten a residential or developed area, however, they do encourage that natural process to return. The problem with that is that as housing prices uh, increase in California and cities and urban areas, more housing is being built in wildland urban uh, areas or the wildland urban interface, also called the WUI. And the best way to manage those areas um, are for individual homeowners to take it upon themselves to harden their homes and create defensible space around their property by clearing debris and ladder fuels. But that just doesn't always happen. And that is something that can affect how big a fire gets, um, which in the end affects all of us that are living here. Prescribed burns are perhaps the best line of defense that we can actively do. But uh, there are many problems with that due to the Clean Air Act. Everyone in a community where a prescribed burn um, is uh, is planned must be on uh, must agree uh, that that fire can occur, and that's through Cal Fire usually. And unfortunately, a lot of people have health issues that is perpetuated by poor air quality, um, and they can't stand the smoke from a prescribed burn. So a lot of those efforts are thwarted, and I don't know what the solution is for that because prescribed burns do create poor air conditions, but wildfires create even worse conditions and threaten lives. So it's really just a losing situation. 
uh, when that happens. It is really is the best line of defense, though, um, other than just letting natural fires burn. Uh, mechanical thinning of the forest and pile burning are other tactics. Um, and that's when the Park Service comes out and they actually cut down trees and ladder fuels and they pile these this uh, wood debris all together and then um, they light those piles on fire when it gets cold enough and humid enough outside that they don't pose a fire risk. Um, the limits with that is that there is just too much land that needs management and not enough resources. I'm sorry, raking the forest is just not <laughs> a viable solution. <laughs> Uh, not enough resources for that method to be actually viable. Um, pile burning is effective for clearing areas around communities. And we do a lot of that in Yosemite Valley. So if you're visiting in the fall, uh, you will notice those piles of debris covered in what looks like butcher paper alongside the roads. And then the fire or park service crews will come out and light those when it gets, again, when it's uh, cold enough and humid enough that they don't pose a fire risk. And it's pretty cool. Um, they light those little fires in the winter time usually. So it's kind of nice to see them, especially if there's snow on the ground, a little fire burning out in the forest. It's pretty neat. For those considering a trip to the Sierra Nevada, just know that fires are expected anywhere from July to November, especially if we haven't had any rain or snow in a while. Um, so just keep that in mind. But every year is different, and that's the key takeaway. Uh, depends on how dry the winter was before, um, how much moisture we're getting that summer. These are all things that will affect our level of wildfire. There is no quick fix for this, and there will be new challenges presented every year, especially, I've said it before and I will continue to say it, especially with the effects of climate change becoming more and more prevalent. Uh, this year, 2021, presented a whole new element with our record-breaking temperatures in June during snowmelt season or during our major snowmelt season. Because of the unusually high temperatures, and that was like days that were exceeding 100 degrees, we had more of those days in June than ever before, 30% um, of the snow runoff expected to reach reservoirs in California, which is a water source for many places for agriculture, for San Francisco um, and other communities. Uh, only only 70% of the expected water uh, got to those reservoirs. The other 30% evaporated away before even getting there. And that is, uh, as far as I know, that hasn't happened before. <laughs> So that was pretty shocking and very troubling. Um, that also means that the water that should have remained in the soil evaporated away as well, meaning that we will have another potential high tree mortality in the coming years as a lag of that um, of that trauma of uh, of that of those high temperatures. Thankfully, we know that there is hope for a natural fire adapted landscape to exist once again in California, but we need to realize that this place has always burned and it always will. What we can hopefully do is facilitate um, natural fires. If we return to a natural burn cycle, we will see healthy forest with burned areas um, butting up against unburned areas, and that creates natural fire breaks and an abundance of biodiversity in those different ecosystems. So it's coming. Uh, we just have to we just have to be patient and get a lot of air purifiers in the meantime. If you want to know more about the history of fire in the Western United States, uh, you can email me and I'll talk forever about it. Or I highly recommend the documentary called The Big Burn, which you can find for free on the PBS website. Um, or check out the book, The Big Burn, written by Timothy Egan. Awesome resources, both of those. The documentary is fabulous, but the the book is just 
so much information. It is, it's just such an intriguing read. Um, links for both of those will be in the show notes for today's episode. Also, if you live in California, check out the CAL FIRE website, fire.ca.gov for very important resources, especially if you live here. They have a lot of information for fire readiness and projects that are going on now to combat the wildfire crisis in the state. And I have to say, we probably, no, I will say we definitely have the best fire crews here in California. They're awesome. I just want to high five each and every one of those firefighters. Uh, and you should too. <laughs> if you're driving around California, you'll see a lot of communities have little signs up that, that kids spray paint or something and say, thank you, firefighters, for saving our homes. They have done oh, just such good work, and I'm just so grateful for them. I want to thank you for listening to this episode of Little Yo Pod. If you like this podcast and want to support the continuation of it, please consider leaving a rating or review or consider a donation to the podcast via my Venmo account. I am at Laura-Jackson-23. Admittedly, it feels a little weird to ask for donations, but this podcast is a labor of love and there is a lot of time and money that I put into it out of my own pocket. So any support you can give is really appreciated. And if you do give to the podcast, I will give you a personal shout out on an upcoming episode. Last week, I highlighted some of my past financial contributors, but I forgot a very important one, my best friend, Sarah Barker. Sarah not only helps support the podcast financially, um, she gives me really crucial feedback she has from the very beginning. And she and her husband were the ones who literally provided shelter for me and my pets when we were evacuated from Yosemite in 2018 uh, during the Ferguson fire. So that made that experience actually very lovely for me, getting to spend the summer with some of my favorite people. I cannot thank the Barkers enough for everything they've done for me throughout the years. So thank you. Thank you, Sarah and Brett, for the endless love and support you've given me. I wouldn't be where I am today without you. I love you both. All right, guys, that's going to wrap it up for this episode. Don't forget to check out the show notes for links to the documentary, The Big Burn, and other resources, as well as, uh, as, well as ways to contact me. Um, as always, thanks for listening to Little Yo Pod. I'm Laura Jackson, and I will see you in Yosemite.